he's dead. No pulse, no breath, no life. He's, he's dead. 30 or so years I've known him. Well, I haven't known him that long. Living, breathing, teaching, that's how long he's been alive. Healing, loving, challenging. Jesus, though, is dead. We, we thought it was different. We thought he was different. We know there have been others who have claimed uh, the same things. We called them all mad. But Jesus, wow, Jesus was different. He taught with such authority. We saw him heal hundreds, if, if not thousands. We even saw him raise his best friend Lazarus from the dead. We doubted, of, of course we did. We were confused. Who really was this man who claimed to be God? Could he have been the Messiah, the anointed king, he, the one who was going to solve all our problems, who rid us of Roman rule, ushering God's kingdom, who knows? He's dead. When he got arrested, when it all went south, we were scared, of course we were. Now what? The first thing that happens in a murder case, as we continue our true crime story, is the pronouncement that the individual is in fact dead. Uh, the police or the coroner confirms there's no more life. It has gone. Jesus is dead. All his promises rested on him being who he said he was. Saying he would die and then rise again, but he's dead. Joseph and Nicodemus, we looked at them last week, they knew he was dead. They may have honoured him with the king's burial, but they knew he was well and truly dead. Mary thought he was dead. See that in the passage? She presumes his body's been stolen. Peter dead. John dead. They didn't understand he was to rise. The one they thought may have been special, whose teaching mesmerised them, whose actions so often confused them, he's dead. And as we start today, we need to remember that Jesus was dead. Of that there is no doubt. We saw last week, didn't we? He died quicker than everyone else, than the others on the cross. He was taken down. He was wrapped in 35 kilograms of linen and spices and buried in a tomb. Once again, the most brutal and experienced of executioners had killed another one. Well done, Romans. He's dead. We know different, though, don't we? Some of us didn't get up for a walk this morning. Didn't have breakfast this morning because he's still dead, did we? We haven't got a band of thousands today because he's dead, do we? We know how it all ends. In that vein, let's head to the end of the book. Grab the cards. If you've got the cards, you guys, grab to the cards. We're going to head... To the end of John's book, our key verse as we begin. Here in John 20, 30, 31, John tells us why he was writing. The second half of this verse, he wrote, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that Jesus is who he said he was, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Here John says the purpose of his writing is that we may read it, we may see the evidence, we may believe and have life. John says in John 10.10, 10, this is why Jesus came. I have come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. And this has been a question I've been wrestling with as I've been preparing this. In my day-to-day -day life, what difference does it make to me that Jesus really did rise from the dead? Do I know this life in all its fullness? Why does it matter? Why do we celebrate it like we're doing? Why does Paul say, if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain? Why did my friend Mike at university, I've been reading the Bible with him for a few months, and suddenly, 
when we looked at the evidence for the resurrection, we explained its significance, he went, that's it. That's the key. That changes everything. Well, John wrote it all down. He recorded it all so that we may believe and have life. So we're going to do those two things. We're going to firstly play the role of a detective in our true crime story. We're going to look at the three strands of evidence. Three stories that show that the resurrection did happen so that we may believe. Maybe for the first time. Or maybe like it's been for me this week, it's been a brilliant reminder and an encouragement that this did happen. And then secondly, we're going to look at what life to the full looks like. So firstly, of our three strands of evidence, let's look at the empty tomb. I woke up early that Sunday morning. Of course I did. I couldn't sleep. Jesus, he'd, he'd been gone for nearly two days. He'd been taken from us, killed, murdered. That man, Pilate, kept saying he was innocent, and yet they killed him. Of course, I couldn't go on the Sabbath, the Passover, to see him, but as soon as I could, I was up to honour him, to go to the tomb and see where Joseph and Nicodemus had laid him. I can still vividly remember it now. It took a while to get there to the garden, but as I turned the corner of the garden, I could see something wasn't quite right. The stone, a big, heavy weight of a stone, it was shoved to the side. You could see right into the shadowy darkness within. Why? Why would someone be so cruel? Why would they steal a dead man's body? I know people did it for money or maybe to steal something they were buried with, but why would they steal my Lord's? Who would do such a thing? So I ran back to Peter and John, tears streaming hysterical. They've taken him. The tomb is empty. They've taken him. That's Mary. It's as secure a historical fact as you can find that the tomb was empty. You may not believe Jesus rose from the dead, but you'd be going in the face of historical evidence to say that a man called Jesus did not live, a man called Jesus was not crucified, and that his body was not found. The tomb was empty. Pastor Andrew Wilson, he helpfully explains, if the tomb was not empty, then the Christian movement would have instantly been scuppered. Just think of it now. Um, Jesus risen for dead, the tomb was empty. Oh no, sorry, here's the body, we stole it, we've got it. They'd be able to do that if the tomb wasn't empty. Somebody would be able to produce the body. They could never produce the body. We then see in Matthew, if you flick back rapidly with me to Matthew chapter 28, we see this story which was made up, this conspiracy of the guards' report. I'll read it to you, Matthew 28 verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why the need for the story of a bribe? It would only have been needed if the tomb was actually empty and we needed a way to explain it. And then thirdly, the Christians made the empty tomb central to their early preaching. That would have been a ridiculous move if it wasn't true. Many of the disciples were killed for saying it was. And in chapter 19, we've seen that none of them actually expected it. None of them in this passage actually expected it. A um, journalist in the New York Times wrote this. On one point, virtually all scholars agree. 
Shortly after Jesus was executed, his followers were suddenly galvanized from a baffled and cowering group into people whose message about a living Jesus and a coming kingdom, preached at the risk of their lives, eventually changed an empire. Something happened, is the phrase scholars use again and again, but exactly what? Exactly. But there is no doubt about the empty tomb. Thirdly, or secondly, sorry, we see the folded grave clothes. I heard a knock on the door, a frantic one. Me and John and a few others have been holed up since it happened. We've been trying to work out what had gone wrong, trying to work out what had happened. Then, Peter, Peter, they've taken him, they've taken him. She was there, Mary, breathless and in tears. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Me and John ran furious, confused at the same time. How could someone do this to him? Uh, John likes to say he beat me to the tomb that day. Well, he can challenge me to race any time he wants. But anyway, we got there. And like Mary had said, that stone, it was rolled away. So we approached the tomb cautiously. John looked in and at first he let out a small sort of shriek. So I approached and I saw what had made him jump. It, it was warm out, but as we bent down into the stone tomb, the cold air hit me. Where the body had lain, there was now only strips of linen lying there. The, the cloth Joseph Nicodemus must have used. Lovely strips of white linen, fit for a king, they were still there. Why on earth would grave robbers have done this? I know there are grave robbers around, we all did, but I'd never heard of anyone who unwrapped the body. And then get this, this is what confused me most. The, the cloth that had gone round his head, it, it was separate a little bit, folded, as if someone had deliberately placed it there. Sure, surely not. We, we didn't know what to think, but the thought certainly entered our heads. Maybe, just maybe, it wasn't grave robbers. The contrast here is with the story of Lazarus in John 11. John loves symmetry as he writes. John 11, verse 43, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It says in our passage that John saw and believed. Throughout this passage, we keep seeing it say they saw, they saw and they believed. They looked at the evidence before and they couldn't help but believe something special has happened here. As it says in our passage, they didn't quite get it yet. But they knew this was no grave robbery. This was different. They knew this was not the same as Lazarus. This was different. Lazarus came out with in clothes, stinking after four days in the tomb. That's for folded grave clothes. Thirdly, our third strand of evidence, Jesus physically appears. The boys went home, confused, excited, shocked. They, they went home, but I couldn't. I hadn't looked in yet. I couldn't. I was angry. I needed to grieve. I didn't know where he was. Something drew me to look into the tomb to see what Peter and John had seen. I, I, I bent to look into the tomb, the cold air rushing onto me, cool, fresh. And then I saw them, two men in white, sitting there, just sitting there where Jesus' body had been. I'd been outside the tomb. I hadn't seen them go in. I didn't know what to make of it, just casually sitting there. One of them asked me why I was crying. Why do you think? Men never get it, do they? 
They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him, I said. I then sensed something. Someone was behind me. A man, I supposed it was just the gardener, wondering what was going on. Wondering why the tomb in his garden, no stone in front of it. Maybe he knew. Woman, why is it you're crying? Who is it you're looking for, he asked gently. I pleaded with them to tell me where they'd put him so I could go and get him. It was then that he spoke again. Mary. He called my name. It took me a second, more than that really, to recognise that voice, that loving, gentle voice. Surely not. He looked the same, but different. He wasn't bloodied and weak like he was on Friday. There were signs of his crucifixion, scars on his hands and his side, but he was alive, strong and well and truly alive. He was there, my teacher, my Lord, my God. He wasn't dead. I'd seen him die. I'd seen the nails. I'd seen the body taken away, but here he was. Jesus was alive. When Jesus rose, it wasn't like Lazarus. He didn't come out after a few days stinking. He physically appeared in a resurrection body. You know when a famous person dies, they often say their work lives on? The resurrection isn't like that. It wasn't just Jesus' radical teaching which lived on. He lived. He physically rose from the dead. Throughout the last few chapters in John, we see John emphasising the physicality of his resurrection. We see Mary hugging him. We see Thomas poking his scars. We see Jesus later cooking fish by the shore. Jesus was not a dead man walking. He wasn't a ghost or a vision. He physically rose from the dead. The only person in history to properly die and rise again into a new body is Jesus. A mark of a new creation to come, the new body to come. I was joking with uh, John King on the phone on Thursday. He's had a real palaver with his wheelchair recently. We're trying to sort it out, weren't we? We were. And we managed to somehow. Well, you did. Uh, and we said, we were joking, we said, well, in heaven, John, no more wheelchair for you. He, like John does here, he was claiming he'd be beating me in a foot race in heaven. That's unlikely. But the fact that John here will have a new physical body and a new creation is not. Jesus helps us here see what the resurrection will be like. He helps us see why it matters. So that leads to the question, what difference does this all make? If it really happened, what, what, what on earth does it actually matter to us now? I think we see four things. Firstly, we see the resurrection means Jesus was who he said he was. Look down me at verse 18, chapter 20. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. And then we see Jesus in verse 17, just before that, go, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's what he tells Mary to tell them. Mary calls him teacher, and he gently goes, no, I'm not just your teacher and your friend anymore, I am God. And that's because I'm not just going to stay here, I'm not just going to keep teaching. I'm not back forever, Mary. I'm heading back to my Father. Throughout John's Gospel, John's been underlining the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, who has come from the Father. The disciples have gotten their hopes up, and then he died. Now he tells Mary to tell them, no, 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 it's true. I am the King of the universe. I am who I said I was. I've done what I said I'd do. Next week we'll see Thomas. He sees the scars and he declares, my Lord and my God. That's the exact conclusion John wants us to come to as he looks at these events in Easter. If Jesus was who he really said he was, and he really did rise from the dead, 
then surely he's worth following and finding out more about if you don't already. But notice in verse 17 what he says. It's beautiful. I'm going to your Father. I'm going to your God. Second thing we see then is the resurrection means Jesus did what he came to do. Good Friday, at the cross, he died in our place. He took the punishment we deserve so we could be reconciled to God the Father, our Father. I'm going to your Father, I'm going to your God, it's beautiful. Jesus saying the cross was not a failure. The point of the cross that it was finished with, sin was dealt with, the guilt and punishment of sin was done. And now we have a relationship with God as our Father. When he breathed his last, when he said it is finished, that's the same phrase used to stamp on an invoice, meaning paid in full. And here he reminds us that he died so that we might be called God's children. Ridiculous. His death restored our relationship with God. He properly died. We've established that. And our sins died with him. And he's restored for his followers a relationship with God that they were created for. Let me tell you a silly story which illustrates these two points. He is who he said he was and he did what he came to do. Now, imagine you're here, you're exploring in this remote jungle somewhere, captured by some locals. They say if you want to go free, you must fight the lion that lives on the edge of the village. There he is. If you defeat the lion, then in honour of your bravery, they'll set you free. You have no choice. So reluctantly, you pluck up the courage and you approach the lion's cave. At this point, uh, a little scrawny man, uh, we're going to call him Simon, he jumps out from behind a bush and he goes, I'll fight him for you. I'm Simon. I'm the world famous lion fighter. I can kill him with my bare hands. It has to be said it looks unlikely, doesn't it? It's very unlikely. But hey-ho, no harm, no foul. It's worth a shot, isn't it? So off you go down to the cave. For as long as Simon is down there, you don't have a clue if he is who he says he is or if he can do what he says he can do. He could just be mad. For as long as Jesus stays in the tomb, we don't know if he is who he says he is or if he can do what he says he can do. He could just be mad. As soon as Simon emerges from the cave, dusting down his shirt and dragging the dead lion behind him, don't worry, no photo, you know you can trust him. You know that because of him, you now have a future. The fact that Jesus emerges from the tomb shows we can trust him. It shows he is who he says he is. It says he, was, he did what he said he came to do. And because of him, we now have a whole new future. Thirdly, the resurrection means just that. We have hope for the future. Because of the resurrection, the eternal destiny of the whole universe is now different. The whole universe, not just us now, the whole universe, not just those who follow Jesus. God promised to fix the world. He promised to make a new start. And being a follower of Jesus means we are, we're in on this new start. The resurrection means life is never the same again. That's why we celebrate it so much today. It's all heading to the day when we'll be raised with him. When we'll be in a new creation, with new bodies, with him. If you follow Jesus, do you live with that fact each day, with that confidence? Caroline, my wife, she went to a funeral of one of our good friends uh, from hockey's mum last year. She said to me it was incredibly sad and confusing at this funeral. They talked uh, of their mum being up there, looking down on us, of seeing her again soon. But it was confusing. There's no guarantee. How? 
you see, just like when spring hits, you know when we see the daffodils, there's no going back. The bluebells this morning on the warp, there's no going back. We're heading towards the summer. The resurrection says summer is coming. God has begun to restore his creation. He begun it by restoring himself. And although we may have to endure some wintry days, we know that, the resurrection means there's no going back. Summer is coming. We're heading to the eternal sunshine of the new world. Do we live like this is true? Do we live each day with the joy that this is true? Do we get massively down with just life's problems, and they are problems, forgetting what is to come, forgetting what God has done? Do we obsess over these pain and problems now, forgetting what is to come? Let the resurrection give us hope. Let it impact how we live today. Dark days, they'll come. Real struggles, yes. Questions and doubts, I'm sure. But remember, summer is coming. The resurrection proves that. And so finally, the resurrection means that today matters. Remember John 20, 30-31, it was written down so you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life for eternity, yes, but also life now. So this has been a challenge for me as I prep this. What does life look like now? What does this life to the full look like now? So we're going to look at Jesus' words to his disciples, his final few words to his disciples when he sees them again. So that you may have life. Let's go to that room. It had been an odd day, bizarre evening. That, that morning we went to the tomb, we couldn't find Jesus' body. And then after we'd left, Mary bounded in. She told us she'd seen him. She claimed to have actually seen Jesus again alive. We, we were scared, we were confused. A number of us had gathered together and we were wondering what was going on. Hoping the Jewish leaders who had got Jesus killed weren't coming after us next. We, we'd locked the doors. It was a subdued atmosphere, no one knowing what to say. Awkward silences, questions, sort of, we'd start up saying something and then stop. We'd, we'd followed this man for, for three years. We'd left everything to follow him. Then suddenly, with no real warning, through the locked door, he was there. Jesus was there. He was alive, properly alive. Breathing, speaking, moving, not half dead, really alive. He showed us some scars where the nails had gone, where the spear had gone. It was really him. We couldn't believe it. We couldn't catch our breath. How on earth? We just kept looking at him, confused. What on earth? He was dead. Now he was alive. Calm, chilled, measured. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said, just like his father had sent him, he was sending us. Sending us where, Jesus? Sending us to do what? It felt like he was giving us really important instructions. He was really there. Jesus was really alive. I can't imagine being in that room where Jesus appeared. Maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can't for the first time. It must have been mind-blowing, mustn't it? They'd seen him die on the cross. But as we close, let's notice three beautiful things Jesus gives to them. This is when he appears to the disciples, verse 19 onwards. He gives them three things. He also gives them to us if we choose to follow Jesus. Peace, power, and purpose. Firstly, peace. He says, peace be upon you. He says this twice. First and foremost, the death of Jesus, as we've seen, has brought us peace between us and God. When he showed them his scars, 
he was saying, as we've seen, this is what has brought you peace. Justice was bought with these scars. Peace was established with these. It's really important this comes first from Jesus. Peace comes first. Before he tells them what to do now, what to do next, or how to do it, he tells them he's made peace with them. You see, this peace, it can't be achieved by our effort or our actions. It's something that has been achieved by Jesus. Peace between us and God. How do you get that peace? Everybody doesn't have it. It's a gift from God. We receive it or we walk away from it. More accurately, we receive him. John 1 verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul then says in Romans, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is foundational to all of this. If we don't have peace with God, we'll take all those other gifts and use them to try and make peace. I wonder if you do this. I, I know I do. So often I try and make peace with God through doing something. I, I forget it's all been dealt with on the cross, that it is finished. My guilt, my shame, it's gone. If you're here today living with guilt, if you're here today living with shame, bring it to Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Receive his peace. Do you live with peace? Do I live with peace? Peace is first, it's free. Everything else is the effect of the peace, not the cause. It's for fruit. Peace is the root and it's a gift from God. Secondly, then we see power. Read down with me as we see here. Verse 21. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus here performs a sort of acted out story, a parable. He breathes on them. It's a bit odd. Seven weeks later in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit come in power at Pentecost. And we read about it in the first chapter of Acts. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives is that he makes us able to do what we simply are not able to do on our own. He gives us power. Jesus has given us power. Do you know this? Do you feel this? I know so often I forget this. I think I need to do everything in my own strength, in my own power. Or I go to the opposite and I don't try and do anything because I don't think it'll work. I don't ask God for his help and I definitely don't expect him to actually act. I don't take any risks. God has given you power, if you trust in him, to do what you're not able to do on your own. Loving that person, which is just so hard to love, you have power. Dealing with that family situation, which is so painful, you have power and comfort of the Holy Spirit. Battling with sin, you have the power to kill it. Power you do not have on your own. Struggling to share your faith, you have power to do it and he has the power alone to save. Finding treasure in Christ above all things impossible, ask for his help and trust he will in his power. Friends, remember this, if you put your trust in Jesus, you have power. Let that give us confidence today on this resurrection day. And finally, you also have real purpose, our central purpose for living. Jesus gives us peace with God. He then gives us power to do the things that normal humans can't. And then with that peace and that power, he gives us the main reason for living, our purpose. And the question is, is this your main reason 
for living. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He says, I'm sending you to bring my peace, my light, my love, my truth, my life to the world. I'm going to the Father, but I'm giving you my spirit, my power in you to go into the world, to glorify me, to make me look great as I am, to call people to praise me, to go into the will of God, to honour me for my glory, for the good of those you live amongst. Friends, this is our purpose, sent by Jesus to go and make him look great in how we speak and how we live. At this church here, this is our purpose statement. A people who have been and are being transformed by the good news of Jesus, who seek to live for Jesus and make Jesus known to others in and around Vista. Is that your purpose? Is that what you wake up for in the morning? I shared a room at a conference last year with a lovely Portuguese man called Pedro one of the loveliest men in the world. Every morning he woke up. He was converted later in life, in his 40s, after a really tricky life. Every day, without fail, he woke up, first breath. Thank you, Jesus. First words of the day. And then he said, right, let's go. And he went to do just that, to give Jesus the praise he's due and call others to do the same. My first words in the morning, yours, Caroline chuckles nervously. More of a grunt than anything else. My purpose, what gets me going? So often not this purpose, his purpose. What is it for you? Is it God's purpose? Or is your purpose in life to impress your boss and earn your way up the ladder? Is your purpose in life just to have the most lovely, delightful, perfect family? Is your purpose in life just to be nice to everyone and be liked by all? Do you know and embrace God's purpose? As we close, you may have been puzzled as I was by verse 23. He finally says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Done a bit of reading, done a bit of work around it. He says, what he means, I think, is this. Jesus is saying, when you go and you do as I wish, when you are sent by me, when you tell people about what I've done, when you speak to people of me, with my power, I'm speaking through you. So that if anyone believes your word, if anyone believes what you say about me, I forgive their sins. And if anyone does not believe your words, I don't forgive them. Don Carson, he says this verse is simply the result of preaching the gospel. In Acts 1 verse 8, we're given power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're preaching the gospel. And Carson says this, says, which even brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God or it leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel, and so they're left in their sins. So all this means is whatever you make of this message today now, will decide if you're forgiven or not. So in true lawyer closing argument style, true crime story fashion, may I close by urging you like John, in this verse here, to believe. Look at the evidence, believe. And by believing that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, that we may have life, life in all its fullness. Let's go out into this and live with life in all its fullness, with our peace, with purpose, with power. And have life in his name, for his glory and his glory alone. Amen.